All right, so we are in the middle of a series called Songs of the Savior. And so, so far we've covered a couple of different Christmas hymns. The reason we're covering these Christmas hymns is because each of these hymns, each of these old carols is loaded with truth. They're loaded with biblical principles. They're loaded with these great ideas uh, from everything from the incarnation uh, to the idea of the redemption of humanity. They're loaded with wonderful truths. Uh, we've done Joy to the World. We've done O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and tonight we're doing the song O Holy Night. Let me give you guys a quick uh, recap of the story of O Holy Holy Night very, very quickly, and then I'll turn it over um, to the worship team. So the song O Holy Night was written in 1843. Some of you saw it up on the screen earlier. Uh, But uh, what happened was is that there was a parish priest in a little town in France. This little village in France was called Rochmar, and uh, I'm not sure exactly how that's, um, if that's the correct pronunciation. I think it means Rockmart in French. Not unlike down the road here. Anyway, so Rogmar French, there was a, uh, there was a, a parish priest, and uh, the little church had just gotten a new organ. And so he wanted to commission this organ uh, by the writing of a special poem around Christmas time. And so he looked around this little village of Rogmar, and uh, he found the most famous or well-known poet in the town. The poet's name was Placide Capot. You saw his name up a little while ago. And uh, what's interesting about Capot is, uh, first and foremost, that he was a poet. He was a great poet. Uh, Secondarily, what was interesting about him is that he was uh, what they would have called back then an anti-clerical. In other words, he would have looked at the church and he would have said, there's so much corruption in the church, I just can't buy into that. And what's more, not only was he an anti-cleric, but he was also a self-proclaimed, self-avowed atheist. And so it's just this interesting story of this uh, this priest from this local church basically coming to this poet who's an atheist and saying, hey, would you mind writing a poem for this commissioning of this organ? You can just imagine the weird position that might have put Capot in, but Capot uh, agreed. He said, all right, I'll do it. And so over the course of the next several weeks, Capot took this uh, this undertaking seriously. And uh, he actually used Luke chapter 1 and 2 as his... Um, basically his uh, support for the, the poem that he began to write. And so again, what you're going to see here in a moment as we sing O Holy Night is, are really the reflections of someone who's coming at the story of Christmas from a completely different angle from the rest of us, right? There's a sense in which what he's doing, what Copo is doing, is he's reading Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, and he's saying, if this whole thing is true, then it's an amazing story, right? Then, then we're of inestimable value in God's eyes of this incarnation thing, this Christmas story is really true. He, so he, he got to the point where he was really, um, he was just overwhelmed and excited about this task of writing the poem. He was near completion. He was um, on his way to Paris and on his way to Paris, he was in a wagon and he finished penning the poem and he was so impressed by his own work and by the magnitude of the story that he said, this has to be made not just into a, a poem, but into a song. And so when he got to Paris, he looked up one of his good friends who was a, a composer. The composer's name was Adolphe Adam. And uh, what's interesting about Adolphe Adam is that Adolphe Adam was also not a Christian. He was Jewish, right? And so Adolphe Adam said, I'd gladly put this to music. He put it to music. And then within the next year, the song had been, become so popular and so famous uh, that they actually sang it in Paris in an opera. It's been one of the most well-known Christmas songs since then for the last 170 years. This insanely popular song that was, um, 
commissioned by an unknown priest somewhere in France, a little village. Uh, The words were written by an atheist and an anti-cleric. And then finally, the tune was written by this man who was Jewish. And yet we've got in the words of O Holy Night, some of the deepest biblical truths that we see in any of the Christmas hymns, any of the Christmas carols. And so with that, let me just sort of prepare you to hear the words of O Holy Night uh, as our worship team leads us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you um, for the reflections of um, Placide Capot in this uh, lovely song. I thank you for the reflections of someone who um, maybe hoped that you existed and hoped it was all true, but didn't know or didn't really think it was. So, Father, I pray that this morning, as we um, even look at just one fraction of his observations um, from Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, that, uh, that we would join him in uh, seeing you as you truly are and seeing your son Jesus as he truly is as well. And so, Father, we pray um, that you would give us your spirit this morning uh, to enable us um, to see the incarnation and the Christmas story and, and particularly how it impacts us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So anybody in here ever sort of daydreamed about designing your own home? Just if you can raise your hand really quickly, right? So any number of us probably. Um, one of the things that we do in the Pierce household is um, we watch a show called Extreme Homes, which is all about architecture. And, uh, and so we're watching that constantly. It's, it's on in the background a lot. And, uh, and there are all these wonderful homes that different architects have built. Um, our uh, children have historically played this little game called Minecraft, where you get to design your own home and build things. There might be a few Minecrafty people out there. Um, Brendan, I see you right there. I saw your hand raised. Just kidding. I, Brendan's an adult. Anyway, um, But architecture is this interesting thing, and it really sort of entails form as well as function and sort of the meshing of those two things. Uh, One of the most famous architects in the world, but definitely in Spain, is a man named Antony Gaudí. Maybe you guys are familiar with the term gaudy, but uh, here's a picture of um, Gaudí here. And uh, this is obviously a picture of him as an older man. But Gaudí was actually uh, designing architecture in the 19th and 20th uh, centuries in Barcelona in particular and across Spain. He was part of a movement called the Modernisma movement, or the modern movement, and uh, and he designed all of these, um, you know, whimsical and fantastic uh, parks and buildings and cathedrals on and on and on. Um, Now, as a young uh, architect um, who, in in some respects, was sort of um, almost like Frank Lloyd Wright met Dr. Seuss met Willy Wonka, and all of those people you have joined together to become this man, Anton E. Gaudi. He designs all these things. And if I can just leave you, um, get you in a second, Isaac, to leave it on uh, Sagrada Familia, which is his greatest work. Um, but it's interesting. His story is amazing. He's this, you know, this budding architect. He's become famous across Spain for all of his various works. And people are paying him exorbitant amounts of money to design their homes and their palaces and their churches. And he's become, you know, very famous. And as a young architect, he falls in love with a woman whose name is uh, Josefa Moreau. And, uh, and so he falls in love with this woman, but she doesn't respond to him. She doesn't love him back. And so Gaudí essentially says, she's the only woman that I will ever love. And turns out she was the only woman that he ever loved. And since she did not reciprocate his feelings, he poured the rest of his life into designing architecture, particularly architecture for the church. He was a very 
religious man. And so he did all of these different things. We just showed you any number of different pictures of things that he designed. The exteriors, again, were fantastical, Willy Wonka-ish. The interiors were just as fantastic and whimsical. They were amazing. But he, became, he began his most famous work uh, called the Sagrada Familia here. It's in Barcelona. It was begun in 1883. And what's interesting is it's still not complete today. It's due to be complete in 2032. And uh, so he began this work in 1883. It was really his magnum opus. It was sort of the crowning achievement, the crowning work of his life. And again, uh, because he, his love and affection was rejected, he had nothing but time to pour into the Sagrada Familia. And so he um, became so uh, enmeshed in this project that he even moved into the Sagrada Familia and he worked from there. He was so absolutely sort of pouring himself into this project that he let his hygiene slide. He didn't change clothes for days on end. He didn't sort of take care of himself. So that um, over the course of the last 20 years of his life, any number of people came into the Sagrada Familia and they saw what they presumed to be this worthless, vagabond, homeless man wandering around in there, only to find out later that it was actually uh, Gaudi um, on his uh, rounds around the building, checking on the work being done. Well, in 1926, Gaudi had gone down the street um, to a local church to, to be part of Mass. And as he was making his way back, he tried to hail a, a tram on the streets of Barcelona. And uh, the tram, as it came along, looked at him and just assumed that he was a typical worthless, homeless, drunk, vagabond, tramp, whatever the case may be. And so the tram ignored him. And as the tram ignored Gaudi making his way home from Mass, it accidentally struck him ran over him, and he lay in the street bleeding and unconscious, right? And so the tram just went on because they thought he was just this worthless drunk. And not only that, but over the course of the next seven or eight hours, all of the people that were making their way through the streets of Barcelona where he'd been uh, run over, again, looked at him, and all they saw was, again, what to their eyes seemed to be a worthless drunk, a worthless vagabond, a worthless tramp. Later that day, a policeman came along and said, well, I guess I've got to deal with this worthless man, picked him up, threw him into the back of the police buggy, and took him to a pauper's hospital. This was a hospital for people who were poor, for people who were penniless, for people who were homeless. Well, two days later, um, his friends were looking for him. You know, he wasn't on site at the Sagrada Familia. They didn't know where he was, and so they looked for him in the various hospitals. They looked for him all over the place, looked for him any number of different places, until finally one of his friends went to the pauper's hospital, and there, lying in this um, bed in a pauper's hospital, was uh, Anthony Gaudi. Again, everyone in the hospital um, had mistaken him for a worthless um, beggar, right? They had no idea who he was. And his friend came to him and said, Anthony, let me, let me take you out of here. Let me take you out of this uh, pauper's hospital and take you to a real hospital where you can get real help. To which Gaudi responded, I belong here among the poor. I belong here among the poor. Two days later, he died in a hospital surrounded by those who the society deemed worthless, right? As one of them, seeming worthless himself. And yet, several days later after his death, he was buried in the Sagrada Familia with a funeral that was fit for a king. Now, the point is this. The point is this. There was a man here in Antony Gaudí who was of immeasurable, inestimable worth, He was the most valued architect in all of Spain, one of the most valued architects still in the history of humanity today. He was of immeasurable worth, but he was looked upon by everyone, the tram driver, people who came to visit the Sagrada Familia, people who passed by him in the street when he lay unconscious and bleeding, this policeman, the people at the hospital, everyone looked at him and they thought he's just 
a worthless old beggar. No one knew who he was, and yet here he was, this person of immeasurable worth, but looked upon by everyone else as being worthless, right? So here's the point. The point is that today, there are many of us in this room this morning who feel like we are also worthless, or maybe we think the world views us and sees us as being worthless. Maybe it's because our parents unintentionally sent messages to us saying as much, maybe not overtly, but maybe accidentally, they communicated to us a, a message that we're not worth very much, or we're not worth anything at all. Maybe our coaches or teachers did. Maybe we have a spouse that's communicated that same message to us, that you're worthless, you're not worth my time. However, part of what Capo in O Holy Night grasps, part of what Luke chapter one and two grasp is that the arrival of Jesus, the incarnation, that Christmas proclaims your immeasurable worth to God. Let me say that one more time, that Christmas, the incarnation, the coming of Jesus in the Christmas story proclaims your immeasurable worth to God. This is one of the truths that Capo hits upon in O Holy Night. Let's put the first verse up if we can really quickly, and I'm gonna read it. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. There are any number of different themes that we could have talked about through that, um, this, this hymn, this carol. There are any number of different themes we could have talked about from even this first verse, but the theme that we're gonna talk about today is what Capo realizes as he's reading as an atheist, the first two chapters of Luke, where he says, if this is true, then man is of inestimable worth. What Capo is saying here is that God's entering into humanity in order to rescue us, in order to redeem us, should proclaim to you and should proclaim to me and should proclaim to the world around us in deafening fashion just how much we are valued by God. Let me say that one more time. That the coming of Jesus, that the Christmas story, the incarnation should proclaim loud and clear in deafening fashion just how much we, just how much humanity is valued by God. You see, Christmas should remind us of our worth to our heavenly father. The birth of Jesus proclaims worth to the worthless. The incarnation takes those who seem to be of no value and declares their immeasurable worth to God. Again, if you remember Luke's using, um, I mean, sorry, Capo is using the book of Luke and we see in verses, in chapters one and two of Luke, precisely where he gets this idea of our worth being something that's proclaimed at the incarnation. First of all, what we see in chapters one and two of Luke is that God chooses what seem to be worthless people, worthless members of society. The first group he chooses is a group of seemingly worthless men. Let me start Luke chapter two, verse eight. It says this. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom 
his favor rests, right? This is a group of, of seemingly worthless men, right? Seemingly worthless men. It says that these men were living in the fields, right? They were virtually homeless. They were living in these fields. It says, and the rest of the world would have seen uh, shepherds as poor and dirty. They would have been seen as vagabonds. They would have been seen, shepherds, as society's outcasts. They were considered, again, scoundrels and untrustworthy. They weren't allowed to testify in court. And all of life constantly communicated to them a message of their worthlessness. Does that make sense? The rest of the world looked at them as worthless, not allowed to vote. They were considered liars and scoundrels and cheats, poor and dirty. They would have been considered the sort of the homeless of society. And yet to these worthless men, these seemingly worthless men, God sent Gabriel and a host of angels to proclaim the most important moment in all of history, the Savior's birth. They were counted as worthless by everyone except by God, right? God chose a group of worthless men, seemingly worthless men. The second thing we see in these first chapters of Luke that Capo hits upon is that God chose or chooses also a seemingly worthless girl, right? So let's read Luke chapter one, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you, right? So here's a young girl, right? She's uh, culturally powerless in that day and age. We have a tendency to read scripture and to read things from our perspective. And so, you know, in 21st century America, um, a young girl is just as valuable as a young guy, rightfully so. But in that day and age, it wouldn't have been that way. And so a young girl would have been culturally powerless. She frankly, apart from a male, would have been without identity. She would have been invisible, right? She would have been invisible. And not only that, but this young girl whom God chooses to favor was from a place called Nazareth, right? If you remember um, in the book of John, when um, basically John is told that the Messiah comes from Nazareth, he says this, can anybody or can anything good come from Nazareth? In other words, Mary was kind of a nobody from nowhere, right? She would have been seen as worthless by everyone except by God. So God, so God chooses this group of seemingly worthless men. He chooses a seemingly worthless girl. And not only that, but an intricate member of the story here also from those first two chapters of Luke is a woman who also would have been seemingly worthless as well. Let's read verse 36 of Luke chapter two. There was also a prophet or prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And so into this story of Christmas, into this story of the incarnation, into this story of God becoming a man, this, this prime position is played by Anna, a seemingly worthless old woman, right? She was a widow, right? And so as a widow, she would have been seen culturally as a liability. Not only that, but she had been a widow for probably around 60 years. She probably would have gotten married at 14. 
right? It tells us that she, at this point, is 84. And so if she was married for seven years, chances are she was a widow between 60 and 65 years. And so for all of those years, she would have been seen as a liability. She would have been seen as powerless. Again, she, like Mary, would have been seen as not having an identity, particularly because at that time, she wasn't a wife, she wasn't a mother. And so she would have been seen as a nobody, right? And not only that, but again, she was a woman, right? And so in that day and age, she would have been seen as property, not unlike Mary, she would have been mostly invisible culturally. And not only that, but the passage goes out of its way, not only to say that she was old, but very old, right? Very old. Again, a non-contributing member of society, seemingly worse, uh, worthless. And again, she, it even goes out to point out that she's from the tribe of Asher. This was a tribe, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, that had been exiled during the Assyrian exile. And again, she had probably, her family had been taken on this exile and came back at some point in time. And so the other Jews around her would have seen her as a nobody, a no one from nowhere. Everyone would have seen her as completely worthless except God. Does that make sense? And so again, what God has done here is God has chosen a group of seemingly worthless men He's chosen a seemingly worthless young girl, and he's chosen this seemingly worthless old woman. In fact, if God was in charge of choosing a kickball team, everyone would have been like, oh, man, what are you doing, right? You would have picked everybody that nobody else would have picked, right? But here is God choosing all of these seemingly worthless people because to him, they are of immeasurable worth, not because of their worthlessness to the rest of society, but because they're created in his image, right? Because they're created in the image of God. And so some of you in the room this morning can identify with the shepherds, right? Maybe in the world's eyes, you aren't considered particularly valuable. Maybe you don't have a skill set that the world highly values. Maybe you have a checkered past. Maybe you have a flawed reputation that haunts you. And so some of you this morning can kind of go, yeah, I feel worthless. I can, I can identify with the shepherds. Some of you in the room this morning can identify with Mary. Maybe in the world's eyes, you're invisible, right? Maybe you think nobody sees you. Maybe nobody cares. Maybe, maybe the world sees you as unimportant. Maybe you aren't even endowed with the gifts and traits that the world considers valuable and uh, worthwhile. Some of you in the room this morning can identify with Anna. Maybe in the world's eyes, you're past your prime, and maybe you seem to them and maybe even to yourself like more of a liability than the apple of someone's eye, right? Maybe the world has stopped looking at you altogether, right? In God's eyes, however, you, every one of you, every one of us are precious, right? That's, that's part of the message of the incarnation. Part of the message of the Christmas story is that if it's true, that God became a man in order to redeem and rescue humanity, that you are of immeasurable worth to him. And we know that because, again, the incarnation, the Christmas story proclaims your worth to yourself, right? The message of the Christmas story proclaims your worth to God. It's God's way of saying, you were valuable enough to me that I entered into the story of redemption in order to rescue you. The Christmas story proclaims your worth to the rest of humanity. It's one thing, however, just to declare your worth and your value by God showing up. It's another thing altogether that he would declare your value by dying for you, right? By dying in your place. Now, this morning, we have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
And so on various tables in the room, we have uh, bread and wine on, the, on my right-hand side of the room. We have bread and grape juice on the left-hand side of the room. But part of what's being communicated in the Lord's Supper is this message. It's this message that you are valuable enough to God that he would write himself into the story, that his son would become a human being in order to rescue you, in order to redeem you. How expensive is the price of the son of God dying in your place? It's immeasurable. And that ought to communicate something loud and clear to you that you are also of immeasurable worth to God, that he would redeem you. Now, one of the things that Capo hits upon that we, we need to not miss today is that not only are you of immeasurable worth to God and therefore you can proclaim that to yourself and we can proclaim that to you today, but you are in need. You are, some of you are in need of redemption. Some of you are in need of restoration. Some of you are in need of salvation. The verse that precedes uh, the verse about our worth is this, long lay the world in sin and error pining. Part of what the Lord's Supper communicates today is not only your immeasurable worth to God, but part of what the Lord's Supper also communicates to you is that you're more broken than you realize, that you're more sinful than you realize, so much so that God not only had to come in the form of a baby in order to redeem the world, but that he also had to die in the cross, on the cross in your place in order to forgive you for your sins. And so this meal today represents both of those things, that you're immeasurably valuable to God but at the same time that God paid the greatest price that he could possibly pay in order to forgive your sins, which are worse than you think they are. And so this meal today, the Lord's Supper, is for people, only for people, who have come to a point of saying that I no longer trust in my goodness, I no longer trust in the absence of badness in my life to stand before God and be accepted by him. Rather, I come before God and know that I am accepted by him only because of the work of his son Jesus on my behalf and because of my faith in him. And so this morning, there are really several different groups of people in this room. There's one group of people in this room this morning who need to realize that what God is declaring to you in the Lord's Supper is, I love you, that you're immeasurably valuable for me, that I, that I came and entered into humanity in order to rescue you, in order to die upon the cross. Some of you today just need to be reminded of your worth to God, of how much he loves you. Others of you in the room, this room this morning need to be reminded of your sinfulness. Some of you need to look at your life and, and, and admit that you're actually worse than you realize, right? That your sin goes deeper than you realize, so deep in fact, and so grievous and so serious in fact, that Jesus had to die on the cross, on the cross in your place. Either way, the people that are able to come to this table today and receive this bread and this wine are people who for want of other terminology, hold on to the gospel, who believe that their salvation is precisely and only in Jesus' perfect life and death and resurrection on your behalf. And so if you aren't one of those people, then I would simply ask you sit back and watch the people of God who recognize their worth to him and who understand the depth of their sin before him as well. Let's take a moment and let's pray and then I'll read the words of institution. Father, I thank you for um, your common grace. I thank you for the observations of a, uh, an atheist poet and, um, and a Jewish um, composer. Uh, Father, I thank you that through the words of O Holy Night, we can hear um, a biblical truth, which is that we are uh, immeasurably valuable to you, so much so that you sent your son to die for us. 
And so, Father, I pray that we would, in the Lord's Supper today, hear that you love us, um, hear that you have adopted us as your daughters and your sons. Father, at the same time, I pray that as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, that we would remember our brokenness and our rebellion and our sin and, and the depth of it. And Father, I pray that we would remember that our only hope is in your son, Jesus Christ, who entered into humanity to proclaim our worth, but also died upon the cross to proclaim our forgiveness. And so, Father, it is in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray all these things today. Amen. Hear the words of institution now. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.